All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Nehemiah. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, as I predicted, I am upset with past me for leaving the heavy lifting. Um, chapter 3 is where we left off. What have we seen in Nehemiah? Of course, Nehemiah is um, in Susa, the capital, um, well, the summer, um, where Artaxerxes is, um, his summer capital, as it were. And he receives report that things aren't going well back in the homeland. Um, things have stalled, and so the walls need to be rebuilt. Well, Nehemiah prays, and that's really, in a sense, been the theological center of Nehemiah thus far is this prayer, and we spent a lot of time on that, necessarily so. Um, and then, of course, Nehemiah is sent to Judah. He's inspecting the walls. There's opposition. There's these three guys we were introduced to at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 19, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And uh, in one way, shape, or form, these figures continue to show up. So we have these kinds of themes. God's graciousness his even miraculously opening doors so that things will progress along, and yet opposition. You know, why does God miraculously open this door but leave this one contested or, or closed temporarily? And so what we really have in, in many respects here in terms of overarching themes, at least I think this would be one valid take on it, would be to see faithfulness in the, while enduring faithfulness in the face of adversity and simply keeping the ship pointed in the right direction, steady as she goes, years, decades, however long it takes, um, God's good and gracious will is done despite the opposition of the world. All right, so then chapter three, the rebuilding of the wall. Now, again, this is the challenging part because there's lots of names and some geography and none of it's all that certain. So um, just by way of reintroducing this, if you look in your Lutheran study Bible down at the very bottom of page 742, you'll see the note on chapter 3. This will give us a nice overview of what we're going to cover. Um, <clears throat> this account of the repair and rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem lists the names of many individuals and the specific places where they worked. The 41 work details represent various social and professional classes, the high priest and other priests, goldsmiths and perfumers, rulers of districts, Levites, temple servants, merchants. This is an important source of information for the political and social life of Judah in 5th century BC. From it, we have a better understanding of the geography of Jerusalem. Though the exact location of the nine gates and 18 other features mentioned cannot be identified with absolute certainty. All right, so don't ask me. <laughs> There's my caveat. There's my cop-out. Yeah, we don't, based on the account, we don't really have a good sense for these things, or at least not, we can't be absolutely certain. 
However, enough of the topography is known to establish that the walls on the four sides of the city are described in the following order. North wall, verses 1 through 5. West wall, 6 through 12. South wall, 13 and 14. East wall, 15 through 32. The original line of the east wall had to be abandoned and a new wall built on the ridge overlooking the Kidron Valley. You can see the map on page 548. The systemic manner of the project reflects Nehemiah's stature and character. Also deserving recognition is the way the people shouted enthusiastically, Let us build. Reference back to chapter 2, verse 18, which showed they actually had a mind to work, quote-unquote, and that comes up in chapter 4. All right, so without further ado, chapter 3, verse 1, then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. Okay, what um why would it be called the sheep gate? That's where the sheep come in. <laughs> okay, so yeah, if you look at the study note, the sheep gate near the temple at the northeast corner of the city. Sheep to be sacrificed were driven through this gate. Um, you know, as an interesting aside, of course, Christ is born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem near to Jerusalem. And we're told that um, in the hills nearby, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. What are those flocks for? Well, maybe there was some general use. But imagine the amount of sheep you need in order to feed the temple sacrifice system. In all likelihood, many, many of those sheep would end up sacrificed in the temple. So it is interesting that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is born in the midst of a shepherding community where there are sheep who are all designed to go to the temple to be slain. There's a, a nice kind of generalized sense of foreshadowing even, even that early. All right, so, well, that digression aside, we have the sheep gate being built. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Imri built. All right, what else do we see? Well, given that the Bible ends with the heavenly Jerusalem descending we see kind of a foretaste of that. We see the earthly Jerusalem being rebuilt. We see a kind of foretaste and foreshadowing of that just a little bit. We talked about Christ as the temple. And we talk about um, how the temple is destroyed and built again. And there's a kind of foreshadowing of the resurrection. Huh? In the city, we can kind of see a, a destruction of the city and a little bit of a resurrection of the city, a foretaste of, of what it will be like to have that new heavenly city coming down from heaven. Jerusalem, city of peace, hardly. So we long for that city of true peace, which is to come. But the wall and the gates are being rebuilt here. And verse 3, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. That's where the fish swam in. No, in the north wall, perhaps, where a fish market was located. Do note the perhaps. But that's... Uh, there's gate number two. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, 
Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabal, Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stop to serve their lord. Hmm. Yeah, the note says this is possibly Geshem, the Arab, mentioned in chapter 2, verse 19, um, had influenced them not to help. And then the Lord can either refer to the Lord God or to an earthly Lord such as Nehemiah. We don't know. There's a little bit of ambiguity there in the grammar. You know, kind of remarkable that the Holy Spirit saw this work as important enough to um, retain these names and what they did. I guess for the most part good, although here maybe bad, into perpetuity. All right, verse 6, Joyada, the son of Phasia and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. Um, sometimes also uh, the gate of um, the old city or the old gate, as your study note says. They lit its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatia the Gibeonite and Jaden the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harheah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of her ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Herumoth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Hiram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section. And the tower of the ovens. So we have another kind of geographical place, one of those 18 other features or architectural place, maybe it would be a better way to say it, but one of those um, 18 features mentioned in the study note. Next to him, verse 12 of uh, chapter 3. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Bring your daughter to repair the wall day. Verse 13, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. Here's another gate. I don't believe that there's any study note really about the valley gate. Um... They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. What do you think that was for? Never mind, don't, don't even go there. <laughs> Verse 15, And Shalom, the son of Kol Hazar, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. That sounds much more lovely. I'd rather live next to the fountain gate than... He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as uh, the stairs that go down 
from the city of David. By the way, this is the pool of Siloam from John chapter 9, this uh, pool of Shelah. So you can see some continuity there. Of course, we're just ballpark 500 years before that. Verse 16, after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. Sounds like an ancient version of the YMCA, but I can't be certain. Verse 17, after him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress of the door to the house of Eliashab, um, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. Ooh, the priests even got in on the action. After them, Benjamin and the Hashab repaired, excuse me, not the Hashab, just Hashab, repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate. Another gate mentioned. On the east, and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, all right, another gate mentioned. Um, again, nine gates, 18 other features mentioned. The priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, And Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants repaired. Finally, back to the sheep gate. Whew, okay, welcome back, all of you who fell asleep. <laughs> Uh, no, but it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's of great historical importance and of great importance in terms of the linear narrative of the people of God and has some typological importance. I think 
in terms of moral importance, we see that we see how the Holy Spirit values the work of these individual people and remembers their names. We can be assured that that um, when we do things to benefit God and His people, even just very humbly with our hands, cleaning things up, building things around the church, that God is well pleased with this. Um, you know, and then and then likewise, I think you know, there's no need to limit this to the right hand kingdom. It can be the left hand kingdom as well to improve the world around us. Um, because it all belongs to the Lord. All right, that's chapter 3. Any thoughts or questions you have on that? Okay, well, we might have gotten the impression, just given chapter 3, that everything was going swimmingly. And it was just, you know, piece of cake. It's just a water slide. Well, hmm, chapter 4. Now when Sanbalat, boo, hiss, Remember him introduced back in chapter 2. Um, Sanbalat heard that we were building the wall. Notice the we, so here again a section written by Nehemiah. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? <laughs> Gosh. Will they revive? He just went after them. Like this was his full-time job. Pretty sure he was a politician. I think he was. Um, anyway, yeah. Endless list of jeers here. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, boo hiss, there's his lackey. The Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. <laughs> okay, we've got, uh, we've got the typical villain and sidekick here. You know, interesting that the, um, the army of Samaria is uh, mentioned here in verse 2. Um, this is thought to be the militia, not so much the, the, some grand army, but the militia that Sanballat probably commanded. Um, you can find that in the study note. And then obviously, obviously this fox going up and breaking down the stone wall is mockery. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. So uh, what are we seeing here? that Nehemiah once again is praying. And we see the importance and the centrality of prayer when we meet opposition. We can learn many, many things about prayer from the book of Nehemiah. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. So they, they wish temporal evil and destruction of what you, O Lord, would have, um, let them face temporal evil and temporal destruction. Well, I mean, I, again, if this challenges our Christian sensibilities, we probably need to reevaluate our quote-unquote Christian sensibilities. Verse 5, do not cover their guilt. Interesting. Interesting. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger 
in the presence of the builders. Okay, so what is, you know, we want to be a little careful with this. What is the rationale for do not cover their guilt? I mean, it's kind of, you almost have a little bit of Jonah flavor here. <laughs> like, I don't want them to get forgiven. <laughs> you almost have a little bit of that flavor. But, but I think it's a little more nuanced than that. Do not cover their guilt. Okay, in the first place, Nehemiah knows God to be a God who, in fact, covers guilt. And who, in fact, blots out sin from his sight. But do not do this. Do not cover their guilt. Do not blot out their sin from your sight. Um, they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. In other words, what's at stake here is the faith of those building. So for the sake of their faith, for the sake of their well-being, um, punish, punish these adversaries. Very interesting prayer. A little more nuanced than just, hey, they were bad to us, smite them. Um, because there is this wrinkle of, you know, lest, I, just to paraphrase, but lest these, your people who are rebuilding the wall, lose faith, lose trust that you are in fact for them and with them and on their side. Okay. So, um, that takes us to the end of verse five. Let's pause there. I see, um, maybe a hand or two if maybe I imagined it. Maybe I just wanted there to be so I could sip some coffee. Yeah. No, I mean, as, as you were going through this, I'm thinking that's where we are right now in our life. I mean, we're figuratively trying to keep the wall, you know, and all those around us with um, malice are trying to tear it down. And so right. we go back. Yeah, my Christian sensibilities. And then I go, love your enemy. <laughs> and, you know, it's real hard. <laughs> well, there's balance and there's nuance and there's different ways of looking at it and different ways of praying. And I, I think you're very right, Alice, to, to draw the, to draw the, the comparison between these circumstances and the circumstances of the uh, church in the West where we're trying to, uh, build the walls, and indeed sir, already rebuild the walls. Um, and we're doing so while facing great opposition. And being mocked. And being mocked. And taunting. And being despised. Yeah. And all, yeah, all of that. So all it's all that. there. Yeah, it's all there. Uh-huh. And here you see a way in which we can pray. Yeah, a way in which we can pray. We can pray as Nehemiah prayed. Um, those that are hindering, those that are breaking down, those that are, that are despising, those that have put themselves in opposition. Do not cover their guilt, nor let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. I don't know, and if, if somebody wants to see that as, a, uh, as an unchristian prayer, burden of proof is on you to show that this isn't uh, of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> or, or to go face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Nehemiah. And say he was wrong. So yes, please. Um, well, I, I see. What I see is the difference. They were told to build the wall, the uh -huh. Jews. Yeah. And the others are telling them not to. So you, I, I see the difference between people that are in sin and want you to and promote the sin. And that's what I see. That's why I see this prayer is unique because it's saying, hey, these people aren't 
going to repent. Mm-hmm. They're t- encouraging you to sin mm-hmm. by not building the wall. Right. So and they, I, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I, it's a, there's a big difference between someone that's in sin accidentally or gets into it and they're trying to get out of it, where these people are saying, go for it, baby. Ah, great point. Great point. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a key distinction there in terms of the kinds of sin or the nature of the people. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this, I think you pointed out very well, that there's this idea that their unbelief and antagonism um, might harm the builders, might harm the faithful, lest they lose faith as well. Uh, great point. Okay, I'm not seeing any other hands. Let's um, go ahead to verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I, you know, we made good progress is effectively what that means. So they've got an unbroken circuit around the city, as the study note confirms. Verse 7, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed. You can see again how important prayer is. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So that's very interesting. Is that very encouraging? The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. I mean, again, if <laughs> as we apply this to our own time, I, you know, I, I hear this despair. I feel this despair in myself. You know, look, there's no. It's not humanly possible. Um, it's very interesting that they give voice to this. Verse 11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Yeah, these are, uh, yeah, because of the danger to their lives. So at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know, another, um, another interesting wrinkle to this, of course, is uh, that Artaxerxes had actually 
changed his mind and allowed for all of this、uh, this rebuilding of the wall to take place, and indeed had even agreed that、um, lumber、uh, should be used at his expense、um, for the rebuilding of this wall. And so,、um, in every sense of the word, Shanbalat, Tobiah, and the other villains here、um, are working against authority and are trying to subvert. Um, not only the authority of God, which is obvious, and of, and of、uh, Nehemiah and his people, but also of the pagan king, and so they're they're in opposition to his decree as well. Almost like how we have freedom of religion in this country, but there are people who oppose that. Parallels abound. Okay. Why not look at the study note that summarizes these verses, chapter four, verse one through fourteen. The weary and weary Judeans support one another with the counsel of Nehemiah. Today, do not let the taunts of unbelievers or naysayers keep you from fulfilling your calling. The great and powerful Lord, He who stooped to bear our burdens and save us in Christ, is with you in your work. Great and awesome Lord, I remember and praise your good works. Work on my behalf, O Lord, that I may fulfill your purpose for me. Amen.、Hmm. And increasingly, we pray that God would prosper the work of our hands, because we realize that we can labor and it can all be in vain. So we ask that God would grant success and prosper our work. All right, ready to go on to fifteen? Yep. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Isn't that something? Well, that definitely slowed things down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, on the other hand, we're going to get it done no matter what. What a beautiful picture of the church this is: building on one hand, fighting on the other hand, or at least defending. You've got you've got your hammer and nails in one hand, so to speak, and in the other hand, your spear and shield. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be the church、uh, on earth, trying to build、um, while trying to have on the full armor of God. As Paul would say. All right.、Um, I guess we left off somewhere in the middle of sixteen. Let's just start from the top. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held spear shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way. That each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, "The work is great." And widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us.
Beautiful faith. Beautiful faith. And a little bit of strategy. Come to the trumpet wherever you hear it sounding because we're all scattered around this wall doing our building, doing our work. I don't know, I just find this a beautifully rich icon of the church, of the people of God of all times and places. You know, spiritually building, spiritually fighting at the same time. Verse 21, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. <laughs> and I complain after an eight or nine hour day of work. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. All right, so what is all of this, you know, this antagonism and these, these people who are being directed by forces anti-God and anti-Jerusalem and anti-the temple, they're all, and what is this doing to the people? The people are all uniting. They're all together. In, no longer are they scattered in their houses around Jerusalem. They're all united in Jerusalem. They're all for one and one for all. Even when they're asleep, they're sleeping nearby in support. They can be woken up at a moment's notice and come to the defense of their brother. So again, this is kind of beautiful metaphor type, however you want to consider it, of the church and of God using evil for good and using external forces in order to unite the church, his people together all the more. Okay, I think it was verse 23 where we left off. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, this isn't a reference to nudism or anything like that. Obviously, they're talking about, you know, what you do when you go to bed. Right. So, we didn't, none of us put on our pajamas, would be the Western interpretation, I think. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Everybody's ready to go all the time. All right, that's chapter four. Thoughts, questions, comments? See a hand up here. Um, our vicar, and then we'll mosey on to uh, chapter 5. Thank you. A couple things just stuck out to me uh, in this chapter, especially in verse 15, when uh, it says, our enemies heard that it was known to us and uh, that God had frustrated their plan. So like uh, this reminds me of Luther's explanation to uh, the petition in the Lord's Prayer. God breaks and hinders every evil plan uh, and purpose. Yeah. Um, that's a good example of that, I think. And then also, I wanted to see if you had any commentary on, uh, you know, this this statement, our God will fight for us, as in, like, uh, you have that theme of God being a man of war, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He's going He can defend his people. And and we don't have to think back too far. I mean, all that time we spent in First um, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, we saw example after example of God fighting for his people. And, I think when I think of that too, I often think of uh, one of the most poignant examples of that. Well, there's a couple. Remember where the where the angel of the Lord appears and just goes out and decimates like I don't know how many like tens of thousands, and the like the people all wake up, and the army's just gone. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, hard to beat that one. The Lord will fight for you. Um, but then I love the story of, because it's very much thematically the same as this and thematic of, I think, um, you know, the, uh, a suffering and embattled church. And that's um, Gideon, where God just keeps shrinking the army. <laughs> You know, it begins with like, okay, we're hopelessly outnumbered. There's no way we're going to win. And then God's just like, yeah, let's cut that in half. Yeah, still way too many. All the way down to like, I can't remember. It's 300 or something ridiculous like that. Um, and they prevail. Yeah. So there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of historic basis for this. And um, yeah, and we see that God's concept of peace is hardly the pacifistic concept of peace. And we can be assured, I think by extension, we can be assured that God will fight for us. And we needn't rush to an over-spiritualization of this text either, because God has ways of controlling armies, conducting business. Um, he can do things in, in the real material world, in the left-hand kingdom, the civil sphere as well. So we don't want to uh, you know, unnecessarily spiritualize and just make this all about God conquering invisible forces. In every sense, he can he controls everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, Thy will be done. We pray that He would break and hinder every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Isn't that great? Love it. Love it. We need to pray that more. If Nehemiah teaches us anything, we need to address all of these concerns with much more prayer. All right, so into chapter 5 then. Good. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. All right, well, at the most base level, we can see just welcome to the wild world outside of, you know, 21st century United States, where this kind of thing is quite commonplace. Um, but what's really going on, kind of one level up and more to the point, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a problem here because not all of the Jews are in the same financial circumstances. And indeed, some are being quite oppressed, um, having to go into mortgages, having to sell their children, etc. I mean, not good. Um, of course, the arguments made in verse 5 is not our flesh, the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, etc., so both rich and poor were Judeans. All right, verse 6, what is Nehemiah's response? 
I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, "You are exacting interest, each from his brother." You know, so much for the law. Give to those who ask of you. You know, this kind of the nation state of ancient Israel and how their financial system was set up. You know, usury, taking interest, forbidden,、um, forbidden in the church right up until it became popular in the world, and then not so much forbidden anymore. Probably within the next hundred years, ripe to be forbidden again. <laughs> That's kind of a perverse sense of humor. After the entire Western world collapses、um, on account of its. Being built almost exclusively on usury, this day and age,、uh, fiat currencies completely disconnected from any inherent value.、Um, the simple fact that you basically cannot get an education or cannot live without going massively into debt,、um, yeah, this is this is a problem, and it's a problem that the church in the West has kind of had to just、mm, be a little quiet about. Uh, but as that again, why does God forbid things? Not because He's fickle, not because He just imagines, but because they're bad. If you do this, it has bad consequences. And so,、um, unfortunately, I think we're、uh, we're ripe to see those bad consequences. Maybe the church will regain her voice、um, against this widespread practice of loaning、uh, for the sake of interest. Just further, further indebting people. So、um, all of that、uh, aside, Nehemiah is not happy. He sees that the nobles and the officials of the of the Jewish people are oppressing their countrymen, exacting interest each from his brother. So continuing, and I held a great assembly against them. This takes a lot of guts because, again, these are the wealthy; these are the nobles and the officials. And Nehemiah, we don't know that he was necessarily standing alone, but、um, certainly he's going up against powerful people. And he said to them, "We, as far as we are able, have brought." Or excuse me, bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Interesting. So what's going on here?、Um, Nehemiah and some others are trying to buy back the brothers. Meanwhile, they're still being exploited by the Jews. So then, who's ultimately getting exploited by the by the nobility? Nehemiah and the good doers. <laughs> you know. First, you're exploiting the countrymen. Then we're saving them. Then you're exploiting us by just perpetuating this great big scheme. And so、uh, Nehemiah is irked, and rightfully so. So look, we, you know, as far as we're able, we've brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, the surrounding peoples. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So you sell them. To the nations, we buy them. We're the ones, so ultimately, you're the ones just plundering from us as well as the poor. Ah, yeah, they were silent and could not find any word to say. Imagine that. Imagine that. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
I love that language. Isn't that great? The thing you are doing is that good? That's so great. I want to like assimilate that into my vocabulary. Because this would be like the number one way to handle like domestic disputes that happen sometimes, like at the at the dining room table, and you got like kids squabbling over this, that, and I just want to lean back and say the thing that you are doing is not good. <laughs> so excellent. So excellent. He continues, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. You know, there's almost two points here. Like in the first place, did you not contemplate that this is offensive to God? That he is a God who loves the poor and the sojourner. Indeed, his law is set up to provide for the, for the poor and sojourner. You can't glean everything out of your fields, for example. You have to leave some behind for the poor. Various other provisions in the law to necessitate that people don't become destitute. So, yeah, in the first place, don't you fear God? And then in the second place, this kind of two prongs of the fork that ultimately join together. But look, the taunts of the nations that are enemies. They, look at these Jews. They're selling e each other out. They're selling themselves into slavery. They're greedy beyond imagination. Verse 10, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nice. Lending without cost. Verse 11, Oh, yes, please. There doesn't seem to be any uh, mention of Jubilee or the fact that, I get, when did it become a custom? I think slavery was for seven years, wasn't it, in yeah. later times? Yeah, the Jubilee Some, was 50 years, I want to yeah, say, that where was all 50. debts were forgiven. So that, yeah. I mean, ideally there, I think you have like, so that debt isn't being passed on generationally. Right. And all the land uh, reverted back to the original owners at Jubilee too, I think. Uh, I think that that's right. I'm a little, I'm a little vague, a little foggy on some of those details. And then the slaves, uh, was that seven years? I thought, I thought recall? it was seven. Uh, that, Vicar, sure do you know? Sure may be the case. Sure may be the case. I just remember... <laughs> I just remember, I can't remember the context, but I remember the scriptures, like, whoever it was being irate because people, of course, found a way to game this, you know. Yeah. And so they're, yeah, they're like waiting to contract debts until right up against the, oh, look, next year's the Jubilee. Yeah. <laughs> <Absolutely>. Forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no matter what kind of system you have in this fallen world, it can be exploited, even if God himself sets up the system. So, yeah, interesting. There is no talk of that. I, you know, I just don't know. I don't know um, if that was, of course, there's very, it's probably apples and oranges comparing to when they were literally their own theocratic state versus now where they've kind of got a pseudo-authority, limited authority given to them by Artaxerxes. And there's these other powers that, um, you know, Sanballat and Tobiah obviously have some kind of regional authority. So, 
It's probably a little bit apples and oranges, but yeah, there is no there is no talk about that. The the main remedy here, the main remedy here is lend without interest. You know, that's the main um, the main remedy. I mean, we just live in a system where it's impossible to not deal with lending and interest and mortgage and usury. It's just, I mean, you cannot, you can, I don't know how you can really be an American and not in one way, shape, or form participate in that system because your workplace, finances, insurance, everything touches on that. I mean, it's just inescapable. So, but we need to, um, you know, we need to retain our voice that this is, um, this is an aspect of the fallen world. And we even to some degree have this, you know, the predatory lending. We have laws against that, at least where even in our culture, it's recognized like this is too much. You know, you can't, you can't charge people a certain percentage, um, usury that's, um, it's exploiting them. Oh, well. Okay. So the Bible here, uh, unequivocal. Once more from Nehemiah verse 10, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's exponentially more amazing than the fact that they did this. It's the fact that when they were called out for it, they said, okay, we'll stop. (laughs) What? What planet are we living on? Nobody does that these days. So this is to be commended. All right, verse 12 again, they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Yeah, the priests were in on this too. I also shook out the fold of my garments and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Amazing. There are two miracles. Two complete miracles. They heard the rebuke, and they were faithful in remedying the rebuke. They kept their word. They did as they had promised. Astonishing. All right, so... That then is, uh, you know, is success, Nehemiah successfully stopping the, impre- uh, the oppression of, of the poor. I'm at principle here. Are we not brothers and sisters after the flesh? Are we not brothers and sisters in the family and household of God? So this is an example, um, too, this shaking out of the fold. You have these symbolic gestures of the prophets from time to time where they do various um, physical things, um, Yeah, they do various physical things that uh, really drive home the point in one way, shape, or form. Connecting a word and a sign, if you will. Okay, um, 
Why not read the synopsis, chapter 5, verse 1 through 13? Governor Nehemiah addresses the problems caused by excessive interest rates and taxes and sets an example of generosity for the leaders. In politics, words are cheap, but goodwill is rare, and good deeds are rarer still. When people are unfairly burdened, we can follow Nehemiah's example by relieving them, whether by providing for fairer laws or by helping them directly. At all times, let us give praise to Christ, who sets more than a good example, for he freely bore our debt of sin and guilt. We praise your generous ways, O Lord, and thank you for your mercy. Amen. All right. On to verse 14. Oh, yes, please. In the note, it says um, for excessive interest rates. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just had taken a sip of coffee. I noticed that as well. <laughs> Did you notice the waffle word? Excessive? So what precisely is permissible? I don't know. I don't know. I... um. You know, I mean, my, my view on all of this is, has already been expressed. It's a little bit of a nuanced view. It's certainly a view that puts us in tension. Um, as you look at, as you look at um, God's people throughout the centuries, there are many, many circumstances in which they live where you look around and you go, well, this isn't right. How could they do that? This is completely contrary to God's word and will. How could they do that? Are they all still saved? And the answer is yes, of course, they're still saved. There's just some sins that become so normalized and just become the norm of a culture. You can't even exist there without participating. Arguably, you could make that, you, you could make the case that that's true for every single human society. So even if you just said, well, I can't participate in American culture because of usury. I'm a Christian. You go off to some other society. They're going to have some other thing that's inherently contrary to God. So we, we just see how poisoned the world is, how poisoned collective humanity is. We see that our kingdom and house is not of this world. Um, we repent against it. We do what we can to fight against it, to mitigate it, to be good stewards within that system. But we also lament the system as being less than what God desired. Um, you can just see, too, even in our country, how things have, like, I mean, you could kind of see, like, okay, well, we want to help young families get into houses they can't quite afford, so we're going to give a loan with a low interest rate. And it's like, you know, it might start out with goodwill and good intention. And then it's just like increasingly from there, everything becomes loaning, everything becomes credit, everything becomes debt, everything um, to, you know, to the point where it's like, I mean, it's just really nasty, especially for our young people trying to find a place to like property of your own, a house of your own. It's really nasty. I hope you both are working. I hope you both are working good jobs. I hope you don't have too much student debt. It's really nasty. We've created a br brutal, brutal environment here in the world for the, for the, um, the lowest on the, on the food chain, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, it's complete apples and oranges in terms of like specifics and what we can do about it, but we can at least have the, the compassion of Nehemiah to look upon the poor and to help. And as the study note said, to vote in good laws and good leaders that will take us away from abusive practices. You know, usury is an interesting concept because you have the money. Otherwise, you couldn't loan it. I'm going to loan it to you, but I'm going to charge a 
fee. Why would I, why would that have a, because I could profit somewhere else off of that money. But that's already access money. So why do you need to profit off your access money? Why couldn't you just loan that? So the argument falls apart, you see. The whole idea of collecting interest. And there are deeper and more sophisticated arguments if you're not buying the wit and wisdom of Rodi, fair enough, but you have like 2,000 years of church fathers. You have the Torah, the nation state of Israel set up contrary to usury. Um, you've got a, you've got just a very clear standing that this is an immoral practice. But I think you can see how it kept, probably crept in with good intentions. They're so close to being able to afford this, let's loan them the money, small fee, and then credit cards, aren't they convenient? <laughs> oh, predatory if you start missing your payments or something. Oh, get upside down and credit card debt. Oof. All right. Yeah, and in many respects, I mean, this is just terrible, but in many respects, what it really is is just um, a, a tax on the poor. So you're living, you're living, I know it's hard for us to imagine in Orange County because we're blessed, but you're living um, hand to mouth and then something happens and then you've got to have that money for that. Your kid gets sick. They've got to go to the doctor. You've got one bill or the other. You've got to get that money. So then you take that money at the outrageous interest rate. You have to, you have no choice. So it's this additional tax. Usury is this additional tax placed upon you for simply being poor. And who's, again, who's loaning you that money? People who already have it and it's already disposable. That's how the rich are exploiting the poor. Now just amplify that. Now you have, soon you have no middle class. And you've got many of the ills that ail us. Okay. Should we, uh, no we shouldn't. We're done. We're done. Let's pick up next week. At chapter 5, verse 14, um, obviously we've seen Nehemiah stand up for the poor, quite the champion. And um, now we're going to learn about his uh, generosity next week. And um, this text just continues to move at this clip. So one, yeah, two, two to three weeks, two to three weeks, and we'll be done with Nehemiah. Looking to move on from there. The Lord be with you.